Amen. We're going to listen to God's Word out of Acts 13 today, but before we do that, let me give you a bit of an introduction so that you know why we're suddenly in the book of Acts. Uh, we um, have been going through Second Kings, and we have got it, I think, all the way to chapter 8 of Second Kings, and for the rest of the summer, or that's what they say it is, <laughs> For the rest of the summer, we'll be spending time in Acts, and we'll hopefully make our way through Acts 13, 14, and 15 over the next, next three or four weeks. Uh, and then come September, we'll start with a new book. Uh, and now you might ask, but why Acts 13? It's very specific to jump in in the middle. Why, why don't start at the beginning? And here's why. This is the theme of today, and it's the theme of last week. We saw in Second Kings, we saw the prophet Elijah... We saw through the prophet Elijah, God was steering the events of human history through the words of his prophets. God is steering the events of history through the words of his prophets. Sometimes for good, for life, and sometimes for what looks like for bad or for death. Either way, God steers the events of human history through the words of his prophets. And so today, we're going to look at not a prophet, but at an apostle. We're going to look at Paul. Paul is an apostle. And this is Paul's first sermon, a sermon that would be called the Word of God. He's speaking the Word of God. And the question is, how is he using God's Word to bring life? Or how is he using God's Word to bring death? But God's Word is what drives human history forward. So that's what we're going to learn now. So let's read together uh, Acts uh, 13, not from the very beginning, but from verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on to Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you've got any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said. So here's the beginning of his sermon. Men of Israel and, and those, well, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted army, led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him... He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, and the sandals of his feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you fear God, to us has been sent the message of the salvation. 
for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us this uh, um, fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. And also it is written in the second psalm, you're my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he's spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said about the, in the prophets should come about. And this quote from Habakkuk 1, 5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that's the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, they incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples, well, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The book of Acts is just so exciting. It's just so exciting. It is really tracking the story of the New Testament church, the early church. And it's tracking the story of how the church were responding to events around them. How did they, how did they bring the gospel into the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago? And it's really exciting to see how they faced opposition, how they saw people come to faith, how they rejoiced, how they were laid low. It's just a mixture constantly of these two things that's going on. Now we're in Acts, but Acts is a part of Luke. It's Luke that wrote both Luke and Acts. And there's a bit of a misunderstanding that we might have. We might think that 
Luke tells the story of Jesus's life. Luke is a gospel. For those of you not familiar with the Bible, a gospel is a story of Jesus's birth, life, death, and resurrection. It's all around Jesus's life. That's a gospel. And Luke is one of those gospels. And then they call Acts the Acts of the Apostles. That, that's a bit of a mistake, I think, because really the first thing that happens in the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and it's Jesus' spirit that takes hold of the people and it's Jesus' spirit that then continues the story of the church. It really should be called the Acts of Jesus Christ in the time of the apostles. Jesus is at work. And so what we're reading here in Acts 13 is Jesus at work. Is Jesus at work. And, and what I think we're reading in Acts 13 is a confirmation that even as we sit here right now, Jesus is at work. Now last week we had that confirmation that Jesus is present amongst us. He's amongst us. At this very moment he's ministering to us. He has been taken away physically so that he can be more present spiritually. He's present here with us. Not only is he present here with us, he is also working with us at this very moment. And so what we learned last week, and this will be my first point, God's word is what drives human history forward. God's word is what drives human history forward. And the side point for death or for life. God's word drives human history forward for death or for life. The second point was, how do we respond to God's word? Belief or unbelief? Belief or unbelief? And that will be applied to both Christians and non-Christians. And then lastly, what are the consequences? What are the glorious consequences of belief? And what are the sad and heartbreaking consequences of unbelief? So God's word drives human history. That's the first point. Now here's that statement we all listened to last week. My goodness, this, is, this changes everything. We tend to think that in the history of the world, there is a church phase that started with the book of Acts. But in fact, in the history of the church, there is a world stage. There is a world phase. The history of the church, the history of the church is God before anything that was made, tells, uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians, who, who chose before the foundation of anything who will be his church. And then everything was made that existed through Jesus Christ, the living word of God. And then those that belonged to him were redeemed through Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And we are promised that Jesus will come again, that the old will be wiped away and the new will come. The new heavens and the new earth will break on. And so the beginning of the story, the alpha part of the story is the church in God's heart and mind. The end of the story is the church gathered around God's throne. And in the middle, we've got the world stage. And that's the phase that we're in at the moment. And in this world phase... God is at work through the word of his prophets. Perhaps you can remember, if you weren't here, I'll quickly say that Elisha last week we saw would say to a woman who couldn't have children that next year, this time I'll come around and you'll have a child. And because he said it, it happens. And he will say to Hazael the king, you're going to be a really bad king of Syria. In fact, you're going to do terrible things to Israel. You're a really mean man and you're going to do this. And then he goes ahead and does it. The prophets spoke and then these things happened. 
the world phase of history was driven forward by God's word that was spoken by his prophets. And now God's word is being spoken through his apostles. Let's just see how God's word is spoken through the apostles right here in front of us. Interesting, Paul and Barnabas are invited to a, a service in the synagogue. They've possibly read one of the prophets of the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 7, someone says. And, and after they read, they said, well, Paul, you guys, can you encourage us a little bit? We've hear, heard all of these great stories. You are a Jew. Come and, come and tell us something encouraging. So he stands up and he gives him a history lesson. That's what happens in, chapter, in verse down to verse 22, a history lesson that starts with God's people in Egypt, how they're taken out of Egypt, how when they're taken out of Egypt, they eventually are led into the promised land. When they're in the promised land, how they eventually have judges that rule over them. And the judges, they then ask for a king and God gives them a king. He then removes this king and he gives them David. And the moment you say David, everyone, every Jew in the room is very happy because J David is their hero. David is their hero. Now, I'm South African, as you can tell, for those who don't know me. Yesterday, the Springboks won against the British Lions in the rugby game. It was done by one kicker called Mornay Stain. He's done it in 2009. He's done it again in 2021. And, uh, and I'd be very happy if someone wants, wants to name someone close to them Mornay Stain going forward. He's a good man. He's one of my heroes going forward. And uh, it's a name that causes great joy to me. But if you're a British Alliance supporter, you will not like his name <laughs> a lot. But what happened in the Jewish mindset, the moment that David was said, they all went, oh, David, that's our hero. We love David. We love David. He, he led God's kingdom to its high point. He built, he built a massive palace for himself. He, he expanded God's kingdom. He's our hero. He's our hero. And so that's what Paul does. He, he, he gives him a history lesson and it ends with David. But then it seems that he takes David and he turns it up a notch by speaking about Jesus. He, he wants his audience to see that you think David's great. David's nothing in comparison to Jesus, of whom I'm going to tell you now. I'm going to tell you about now. And he proceeds to tell them about Jesus. This is God's word operating at this moment. God, through his prophet, apostle Paul, is speaking his word either for life or for death. And as he speaks about Jesus, he reminds them what's happened to Jesus. Well, Jesus, it says, was prophesied uh, as the one that will sit on David's throne. And Jesus then was condemned and killed in Jerusalem. And because Jesus was condemned and killed in Jerusalem and then was raised again by God, now they can bring good news. They can bring good news to the audience. And that is that because God rose him up, we can now bring you the great news that God has freed you from everything the law could not free you. So that's the, that's the prophecy. The prophecy that the apostles are bringing is Jesus, the better king than David, when he died, he bought for you a deliverance. And you can see about that deliverance in verse 37, 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That moment, that is ministry. That is the ministry of the gospel. That is Jesus appealing to the people in the audience and saying, 
I've died. I have died so that you can live. I've, when I was killed, I was treated the way that you were supposed to be treated. But then I was raised to life so that in my resurrection, you can know that you too will be resurrected. Put your faith in me. That's what Jesus is saying. God's word is working on their hearts. Lips of the apostle. In the same way, God's word is working in your hearts at the moment as you hear that. Because you think, hang on, the law of Moses, don't know what that means, but, but I do know that I've got a guilty conscience that's plaguing me. I, I do know that I feel a low-level uh, insecurity when it comes to God, when he switches that fluorescent light on and the spots appear all over. That's, in fact, one of the reasons that I don't enjoy going into God's presence, why I don't enjoy coming to church or reading the Bible or or praying, or singing worship songs to God. I don't enjoy this because it makes me so aware of my, of my shortcomings, of my sin, of my guilt, my shame. God's word to you this morning is that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes is freed from everything that they could not be freed of by the law of Moses. Freed, justified, they've been justified. That's God's word. Now, Jesus was saying the same word in his time and day. He was saying the same word. And you know what happened to him. And this is now my second point. We either meet God's word through which he shapes history with belief or with unbelief. Either way, God's word will do what God's word does. It will shape history. God's word will do what God's word does. It will shape history. And you can see what God's word did if you want to look at verse 26 uh, at the bottom of your page, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Let's take that off. They fulfilled God's word is what guides history. God is in charge of his word being spoken. And then people either meet his word with belief or unbelief. Either way, God will get what God wants. God's word comes to Jerusalem. It's Jesus Christ. He's met with unbelief and they decide to kill him. And verse 27 says, by doing that, they fulfilled the word of God. By rejecting him, in their unbelief, they fulfilled the word of God. And as we... Look further, we start to see how this word of God, perhaps in their hearts, led them to fulfill the word of God by condemning Jesus. We see that, in other words, Jesus' Jesus's word was fulfilled when people believed in him. People believed in him. And, and the word of God spread, we are told in verse 49, throughout the whole region. And people were filled with joy as the Holy Spirit came over them. God's word goes out and it causes people to say he's either going to be a stumbling block and whatever they, they do, they stumble over him and in their stumbling they fulfill God's word. Or they say, I've heard God's word and it's a stepping stone and as they step on it, it fulfills all God's purposes and it's for God's glory and for their own joy. But God steers human history through his word and whether it's met with belief or unbelief, it is all in God's hands. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. I guess the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do we do with God's word? 
How do we treat God's word if it is this powerful? You see, the trouble is we all have a different narrative in our minds of how the world works and how things fit together. And it's this big story of the world that shapes the way we interpret our place in this world. So this might or might not be an issue for you, but so I'll, I'll use one example that's currently in the news. And it is perhaps Australia is following a COVID, uh, zero COVID strategy. They've got a certain narrative on there. And I think in, in the UK, we're probably following a zero carbon strategy that's coming under more pressure. It's going to cost a lot of money to strip all the to get carbon zero, net neutral and, and all of that. And, and the much bigger narrative with which buy-in is sought from stakeholders is that gradually the, the earth is warming up. And as the earth is warming up, sea levels will rise. And because sea levels will rise, cities will be under threat because the water will rise. And so there is a climate crisis and we need to act now. Now, agree or disagree with that narrative, that's a narrative that we are living in. That's a, that's a story that's placed on all of us. And so we have to ask, how do we respond to that story? I want to suggest to you that God's word would say that story needs to fit in underneath the story of Scripture spoken by God's prophets and apostles. That story, whether true or not, needs to fit in underneath. And what is underneath? Well, here is what's happening. Is that Jesus, King Jesus, sits enthroned in heaven. That's the story. And King Jesus who sits enthroned in heaven has all the kingdoms and powers that exist on earth are under him. And he steers the events of human history from his vantage point. That's the big narrative. Take hold of that big narrative with a believing heart and you might become a climate change warrior, climate change warrior. Or take hold of that, that narrative with a believing heart and you become an evangelist speaking to people about the much bigger problem of our sin and our shortcomings. But, but what needs to happen is that narrative needs to take first and foremost precedence in your heart. You can't say that the biggest problem that this earth has, this earth has is, is poverty or inequality or, or, or healthcare or lack of education. The biggest problem we have is that people don't see this reality. Jesus seated on the throne. And that there is a way through Jesus that there can be peace between us and him. God's word is not just something for the future where we will see him. But it's also shaped the past. One of the commentators said about this passage that Daniel 7, there's a prophecy in Daniel 7 that speaks about Jesus, the anointed one who takes his place, ruling over all the kings. Just listen to this prophecy. We've made songs about this in the past. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was with fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And this is after the four kingdoms were destroyed in Daniel's vision. Four earthly kingdoms were destroyed and made subject of this son of man. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What I'd love to do with these passages as I put them before you is say God is steering the events of history and he's telling us before it happens, my son will come and die subject to worldly authorities, will be raised again and then seated at the right hand of the Father. That's now happened at the end of the gospel. And now he's saying to us, that's happened. What's coming next? What's coming next is, I will come again on the clouds and I will take those that belong to me to be with me forever. And as he's doing that, he's saying to us, Look, you've been freed from your sin. Stop living in fear. Stop living in insecurity. Stop adopting and attracting narratives about the world, about your life, about your place in the world that makes you insecure and and futile and, and weak. Come and see that God is at work. His word has told us before it happens that he's at work. And so God's word is what calls us to come and believe it. Because his word will affect what it wants to affect. It will do what it wants to do. My third point is then the consequences. The consequences of belief and unbelief. You see, the consequences of belief is quite obvious here. It is the Gentiles, and they are filled with joy. They gather, they ask, please tell us more about this word of grace. Please tell us more about this big narrative where there's a great big happy ending at the end. Just tell us more about it. That's what they want to hear. But those that meet this message with unbelief, did you see what they do? Well, they stir up a riot. Verse 49, the word was spreading, verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul, Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. And so here is a second application. If the first application is what is the governing narrative? What's the story in your head of where this world is going? Whatever it is, replace it with Jesus. The second application is that uh, no matter what you do, whether you believe God's word or you act in an unbelieving way towards God's word, God will do what he wants to do. God is sovereign. Why is this applicable? Some of you are perhaps not Christians and you've experienced those difficult conversations that Christians friends or family members have had with you to say look i plead with you put your faith in jesus the end of end of time is near turn and repent turn to him in faith and you've seen their passion it remains a bit alien and cold to you and you feel perhaps a little bit manipulated or coerced into believing you think oh my goodness they make an impassioned plea over here but i just don't believe any of this it raises questions and for those of you that's doing it, that's pleading that people would come to faith, perhaps in your prayer time, you want to shake your fist at heaven and say, Father, why? Why are people not responding? I'm, I'm telling people the gospel around me. And they're going, they're going not into your word. They're not going into this world that you're showing us where you are seated on the throne and where they live only for you, but they're turning their backs on you. Are you, are you listening? Do you not want them to be saved? be given insight god's word will do what god words god's word does for some it will be a stepping stone and for others it will be a stumbling block and and that that response to god's word is up to god and not to us so what i'm doing there is i'm saying to you please continue sharing your faith if you're not a believer 
but with a calm, open-handed spirit where you say God's word will do what God's word does. And if you're not a believer and someone is ministering to you, hear their words as God coming to you, speaking to you through them and consider what they're saying. Perhaps tune out some of the manipulation and the passion and the coercion and say, well, I can, I can see they just love me. They just want me to. But what is God saying here to me? I don't even believe in this God, but he keeps coming to me through this person I love and value and respect. God's word will do what God word, God's word does. Now, what's the example I want to give there? It's from this passage. Paul comes into the synagogue. He preaches. And there's an interesting thing that happens. The group is divided between two. Those that are rejoicing because they've been appointed to eternal life. And those that get angry. And you think that those that get angry, surely this must be proof that this word is really divisive. And religion really is divisive in the world. And, and really, religion should stay out of the mix. But Paul is fully aware of this. That when he speaks God's word, it will create this environment. He says that it stirs up jealousy in their hearts. It's interesting. So Paul comes, he speaks about God's works in Israel in the past. And then now in Jesus, he's done a better job than David ever did. And then the Gentiles go, yes, we're included. And then the Jews go, don't speak like Mo. Don't speak about Moses like that. They get angry. They get jealous. And Paul says in Romans 11, it's actually quite funny. In Romans 11, he says this. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and to save some of them. For in their rejection, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but the life, uh, but life from the dead? Paul is saying, I know that when I speak to Jews, they get jealous because Gentiles are being included. I want that. I want that because in their jealousy, they are being provoked. They're being provoked to consider the word of God more clearly. And so Paul and the early church, for that reason, were unafraid of negative consequences as they ministered the word. In fact, they looked at the negative consequences in a positive way. And that's my third and final point. What is the consequences of belief and unbelief? God's word is spoken. God's word does what God's word does. And for those that believe God's word, well, they rejoice. And those that do not believe God's word, well, they get jealous and angry. And they revile and they stir up. And all kinds of things happen. And because those things happen as a Christian, perhaps you're ready to say, let me retreat. This is obviously then not for me. Don't look at the words that you've spoken uh, as if you've wasted your time. Look at the words that you've spoken, not as if you've just stirred up strife for no good reason. Look at the words that you've spoken in kindness, in open-handedness, in proclaiming the good news to people and say God's word will do what God's word does. Some people will hear it as a stepping stone and others will get angry. But God's word is still true. And it is my job to keep saying it. And what are the consequences for believers? This does not sound like an exciting life, I must admit. One where you're speaking God's word and some people say, yes, I rejoice. And other people say, ah, you don't want to do that. You don't want to live like that. You want to withdraw from a life. You want a quiet life. Can I just not live for my comfort and for my career and for my friends, you know, then keep everything happy? 
why should I go into this life that seems so confrontational almost? And here's the reason. It's fascinating. I, I couldn't believe it when I saw this. It's verse 47. Verse 47 in the passage we read said, Paul, after all this business now, people getting angry and jealous and others rejoicing. For so the Lord has commanded us, he says, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, that's a nice thing to think. Okay, so they're a light to the nations. God has made them a light to the nations. Keep talking because you view yourself as a light to the nations as you speak about this. Perhaps I'll remember that I'm a light to the nation next time I speak about Jesus. But that's not his point. His point is not that they are a light to the nations. If you go and find this quote, it's in Genesis 49. Ach, not Genesis. It's in Isaiah 49. And it's an exact verbatim quote out of Isaiah 49. And Isaiah 49 is not about the prophets or about the apostles. Or about the church. Isaiah 49 is about the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 49 is speaking about the servant who will later become the suffering servant. Whom, If you read the Bible you'll say oh that is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus Isaiah 49 was saying is going to be the light for the Gentiles that will bring the salvation to the ends of the earth. What are the consequences of taking hold of God's word in belief? The consequences are that to, to differentiate between where Jesus begins and where you start is, is, is almost imperceptible. It, it's almost as if there's just a cigarette paper between you and, and, and Jesus. Paul takes words, take words that were applied to Jesus and he applies it to the church. We as a church now that calling that Jesus had to be a light to the Gentiles. This speaks about God's presence, Jesus' presence in the midst of your life as you continue to minister. You say the book is called The Acts of the Apostles. Well, it's the acts of Jesus Christ through his church. Last week we said God is present here amongst us. He went away for our benefit so that the Holy Spirit can be poured out on us. His Holy Spirit was poured out on us so that as we minister or are being ministered to, it's almost imperceptible where the head starts and the body begins. We are one with Christ and we are one with one another as his church. And then my final application from that is, for that reason, our lives have to take on a cruciform shape. What is a cruciform shape? The shape of the cross. Our lives are a constant death. Why? Because Jesus' life was a constant death. Jesus, as he ministers, does not think their life for mine. As Jesus ministers, every thought that governs his work is my life for theirs. Jesus is emptying himself. He is relinquishing. He did not grasp equality with God as something to be held, but he made himself a servant and he relinquished. He gave over. And it is as we die that we live. Can you see how believers that minister in that cruciform way should not be accused of people that stir up strife? Should not be accused as people that makes life worse. 
but should be accused of people that are sacrificing their lives for others. That are laying down their own comfort for the sake of Jesus and for others. That love their neighbor more than they love themselves. Then every other topic, every other thing that we get involved in is an opportunity to come and die. And that's at the heart of this passage. It's an invitation to come and die. Come and die like Jesus died. The Father raised him three days later. And so too he would you, his body, as you follow his cruciform pattern. Believe my word. Live by dying. And as you die, as you give yourself away in ministry, he will raise you up. Let me pray for us and then ask that the Lord would seal some of these truths to us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Our Father in heaven, we admit that we are unbelieving often when it comes to the power of your word. It's mere words we think. But yet you've ordained your word to be the double-edged sword. You've ordained your word to be a stumbling block to some and a stepping stone to others. You are doing what you want to do. And our job is simply to believe that word and to speak it. Speak it to our own hearts. Speak it to each other. Speak and believe it to our neighbors. And we ask, Father, that as we faithfully bring your word, that we will see the great joy of people rejoicing at the message that there is great freedom in Christ. That no longer do they have to wear an armor to protect them from a guilty conscience or to run away from their past or to hide in the shadows because of their shame. But that in the gospel they can come and be fully known and fully loved. Father, we pray that this intimacy will be a source of great joy to us and to those that come to faith. And Father, we pray that where it stirs up jealousy in, and anger in other people's hearts, that we will, not, we will not become afraid, will not become tepid and lukewarm and quiet. But that we will take these opportunities to, to see them go from jealousy and anger into a settled acceptance of the free offer of grace in Jesus Christ. Father, we know eventually some Jews came to faith and you've got great promises to the Jewish people that you will bring them back to yourself. So we pray. We pray that as the word is being ministered with boldness in the world around us, with confidence in the world around us, it will bring many people to faith. We pray particularly today for friends and family members that um, once were believers, that, that worshipped with us or worshipped where they live and have since withdrawn from you and, and pushed the truth aside. We ask that you would bring them back to yourself, that the word that they've heard in their past in their lives would begin to bear fruit. And that they would accept this word with a believing heart. Oh, Father, we lift them up to you. And it's a form of dying for us as we don't put ourselves in the center of attention. But we, we lift these brothers and sisters, these friends and family members up to you. And we say, Father, their needs first. Them first. Our life for them. Please, Father, would you bring them to faith. 
And would you allow us to speak the word faithfully and truthfully to them? Father, we pray that we will put our trust in your word and it will bring much fruit. In Jesus' name. Amen.